Hello, everybody. Welcome to episode three of the Five Points Podcast. I'm Matt Glassman, and today I'm going to be talking about nominations, politics, and Congress. Point one is pretty simple, and this is, I don't mean to disappoint liberals here or Democrats, but there's just no way you're going to procedurally stop uh, this nomination from going through. The, the only way a justice won't be confirmed is if there aren't 50 votes in the Senate. And this is, you know, something that a lot of people have gotten ire about on Twitter and gotten all up in arms about, thinking about all the different ways that Democrats could stop this, and there just really isn't a way. James Walner did a good job, and I'll put all this stuff in the show notes, over at his Legislative Procedures Bob, laying out sort of the basic timeline of the nomination in Congress. And it's true, it does have to go through the Judiciary Committee. And there's ways to slow things down there. And then you can bring it to the floor or extract it from committee if you have to. And there's ways to slow things down here. But the idea that Democrats are going to be able to stop this, um, even if there's a majority for it, is just not really possible. There's sort of one idea out there that you could sort of load up on impeachment trials to start impeaching ju- ju- you know, different officials in the Trump administration. And that would require the Senate to take up those trials. And we went back, you know, through this, we went through this during the actual impeachment trial. And while Senate rules do sort of require right now that you take up the trial, they don't require you have one. They just, you know, require you to take up sort of the impeachment articles and you can dispose of those really quickly if you have a majority that doesn't want to do it. And certainly if it was seen as a dilatory tactic, um, they would be disposed of immediately or the Republicans would just change in the rules in the Senate so they could completely ignore them. So, you know, that's not going to work. Same thing with trying to deny a quorum. There's this idea that, Wow, if they only have 50 votes there, you could deny them a quorum, you know, and then the vice president couldn't break the tie. But that's sort of nonsense, too. You need someone there to make a point of order that there's no quorum. And uh, if that person leaves, well, then by unanimous consent, they can dispense with it. It's just really not going to work that way either. And then, you know, there's also this idea that you could actually just do an old fashioned filibuster here. And of course, that won't work because cloture on a nomination now only requires 50 votes. So even if you do stand there and talk, they can just get their cloture petitions in. The only sort of like somewhat viable thing in theory you could do is if you could get the floor now um, uh, and control the floor on some legislative motion that was going through uh, on the legislative side, and you could literally personally stand there from now until January 3rd, then you could force them to destroy the legislative filibuster. Um, which might be a nice thing to do, but you can't stand there for three months anyway. And as soon as you fell down from exhaustion, McConnell will grab the floor, move to the nomination, and then fire a cloture petition on it. And then there'd be nothing you could do. So there's really not going to be a way to stop this procedurally. You know, what the Democrats are trying to do, um, I think, is is one of two things. One is trying to deny 50 votes from being there. Um, and that's obviously a strategy you can take. But really, they're operating in the public sphere here. And they want to either sort of deny 50 votes from being there or extract the biggest price possible for there being 50 votes. And this is not an unusual tactic in in a legislature. Once you know you're going to lose, what you're really trying to do is shape the public understanding of what's happening, uh, not so much shape the outcomes. We saw this with impeachment, right? I mean, it seems like forever ago and it doesn't really matter uh, seemingly that much anymore. But the Democrats' goal there was never to... Uh, get the pre- uh, get the president removed from office. They were not going to get the 67 votes. Um, but their goal was to shape how people understood the trial and understood the events because, you know, politics doesn't take place in a vacuum. And, uh, you know, how things are understood go on to influence all sorts of uh, future electoral politics as well as policy politics. And so that's the Democrats' real goal here, either trying to prevent the Republicans from getting to 50 or, if they can't do that, shape people's understandings of what the Republicans are doing Uh, such that it may lead to electoral or policy influence in the future that favors the Democrats.
point too is, and again, I don't mean to disappoint Democrats, is there's going to be 50 votes for this thing. Uh, this nomination's happening. There is this sort of idea out there that uh, there'll be some way to to you know get four Republican senators to vote against this, and uh, I, I never thought that was really possible. We did see uh, Senator Murkowski from Alaska sort of bail on this, and Senator Collins in Maine bail on this, and neither of those were particularly surprising. These are two. Uh, GOP female senators who both have been ambivalent about having a hard right courts, uh, court swing. Uh, Collins, of course, is, you know, well known as sort of this moderate uh, from Maine where she's in tough election. And, and Murkowski has always had a little bit of independence from the Republican Party, particularly since she uh, lost the primary up there and then won in the write-in vote. So she has a little organizational separation, but they've also, also both been seen as sort of traditional moderates uh, in, in the modern era to the degree that that exists. They both voted against the AC, uh, you know, against ACA repeal along with McCain. And so there's this idea out there that you could somehow put together a coalition of four Republicans. And to me, the only sort of vaguely plausible way you were ever going to do that was if you could put Collins and Murkowski together with Romney, sort of, because he wants to just stick his finger in Trump's eye. And then maybe Alexander, uh, Lamar Alexander from Tennessee, who's retiring, who you might get some sort of conscience vote because he's retiring and he feels this way. But that it always seemed like a pipe dream to me. Uh, you know, one thing that people are mistaking here is that this isn't sort of a Trump thing. This isn't a place where you're going to see a big break between Republicans and Trump because this is a core Republican uh, policy goal here is to shape the court. This isn't something where they differ from Trump on the wall or on trade or on infrastructure where they'd be happy to sort of, uh, as they have in the past, use agenda setting to ignore him or to actually outright say, just say no and not do something. This is sort of him signing on to their policy agenda. Trump has always been sort of a little worried about his... Um, believability among Republicans and how much he was committed to conservative judges before the 2016 election. He put out his list of judges and he's always hewed very closely to it. Like this is their thing and they want it. And to ask a party to not do sort of their core thing is uh, is basically ridiculous. And and it's not like Mitt Romney would be doing this. He'd be he'd be hurting himself not to do this. He wants conservative judges. Same with Alexander. The other idea out there was there. There's this sense that somehow vulnerable uh, Republicans in close 2020 Senate races might be persuaded to vote against these judges because of public pressure. So this would be like Cory Gardner in Colorado or Purdue in Georgia or Ernst in Iowa or Danes in Montana or Tillis in North Carolina or Graham in South Carolina. And I also always thought that was that was basically ridiculous. Uh, if you're in a close Senate race um, and you decide not to uh, let one of these nominations move on, it's not like you're getting any thank yous from the Democrats in your state. They're all going to still be voting against you. What you are going to do is absolutely enrage your base of Republicans and any, you know, marginal Republicans might not turn out or your base might turn against you. And so to me, if you're scared of, you know, uh, the voters in this situation, you'd be much more scared of your base than you would somehow of sort of like independents or Dem leaners who all of a sudden aren't going to reward you anyway, if you do what they want. And, you know, there's also this idea that Take someone like Gardner, who maybe just be toast in Colorado, and you might say, well, that frees him up to do things. But of course, he has his post-Senate career to think about. And if he wants to be involved in Republican politics in any capacity, as a lot, you know, in the think tanks, in the lobbying world, or just as a, a potential player in the future, the last thing he's going to do is burn down every bridge he has here uh, and sort of break with the party on a core issue that not only the party believes in, but he probably does too. Uh, you know, there is that Jeff, Jeff Flake route where you can just sort of turn on the party and light the thing on fire on your way back on the bridge and then get a job, you know, doing commentary on the liberal networks or whatever, but it's just not credible. And so, you know, and not surprisingly, a lot of these people in electoral, electorally vulnerable spots have come out in favor of, of the nomination. Gardner did, McSally did, Graham has, and, 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 you know, and, you know, and just not, 
you know, really the idea, obviously Collins in Maine is sort of an exception, but it's always been her brand to be against this stuff. She's predisposed not to vote for this. And so I didn't really think that there was any chance of this happening. Um, the other thing some people, you know, want to believe is that public opinion is going to pressure these things. And you do see those opinion polls where like, you know, two thirds of voters want to wait and have whoever wins the election be the person who nominates for the seat. And I don't put much stock in, in policy polling because the big problem with it is you can't really translate it to election polling. You know, it's like the old gun control polls that show 95% of people, you know, are in favor of like, you know, handgun waiting periods or whatever. And that doesn't really tell you how that's going to affect an election at all. In fact, it can affect it the opposite way from the way you think, because it depends how intensely people feel about things. And, you know, those 95% who are in favor of trigger locks or waiting periods for guns, that's, they don't vote on gun control. They don't. They go in the polling booth and they vote on health care or the economy or abortion or other things. It's low down their list. Uh, the 5% of people who are against waiting periods on guns, a lot of them are single issue gun voters. Uh, and they're the ones who are going to remember this vote and really be thinking about it. And I think that, you know, we don't know what the case is for this nomination, but my guess is that the people who want this nomination to go through now, that one third of voters, feel really strongly about it and are not going to forget uh, in the election if, if you don't do it. But the two thirds who do want it, a lot of them are squishy. A lot of them weren't voting for you anyway. And so this may map onto a situation where two thirds of voters want something. But if you do what those two thirds want, you're going to end up losing votes in your election, not gaining votes. And that's a very common phenomenon. And people mistake this all the time uh, in policy polling. You just can't translate it to voter polling because it depends on uh, what people perceive as the, the key issues they're voting for. Um, and and where they set where they set those priorities and voting agendas, and it can be uh, and it can be very much off. You see this in like you know drug polling too, marijuana legalization. Sometimes seventy percent of people are in favor of legalizing marijuana. Does that mean it'll help you as a politician to take that stance? Uh, if that's what your district thinks, no, not at all. It doesn't necessarily help you because if that seventy percent doesn't really care about the issue and votes on other stuff, but the thirty percent who do care vote exactly on that issue, you're probably going to lose some voters who you had prior to prior to taking that stance. Point three is this uh, idea, this mistake I see all the time in Washington, where people sort of equate the health of a party or what, how a party is doing with how many seats they have in Congress. Uh, the idea is that, you know, if you lose seats in Congress, you're doing something wrong. Uh, and if you gain seats, you're doing something right. Like maximizing your seats in the House and the Senate is somehow the, the primary or only goal of a party. And this sort of harkens back to Anthony Downs, you know, theory of economic theory of democracy, where he looks at just party competition and he envisions these party members as simply trying to maximize maximizing the seats. But that's not really how party politics works. That's a good model for thinking about certain things. But when you look at a political party, they're a lot more than just, you know, trying to gain office and hold on to it. Um, and so the thing you have to think about is when are parties going to lose seats? And and one time, one situation where parties are always willing to lose seats is it or not always willing, but reasonably willing to is if they can make durable policy gains for long term objectives. Um, think about the Democrats with the Affordable Care Act. You know, Democrats have been chasing some form of national health care for something like 100 years at that point. Um, and would they be happy to trade 35 seats in the House and control of Congress for, for a few terms in order to get that policy enacted? Well, yeah, of course they were, and they did. And, and one thing about the American system is that um, you know, putting a policy in place in statutory law means it's going to be really hard to undo that policy. Uh, and so it doesn't really matter if you lose control of Congress on that issue because you'll be able to block the repeal, as the Democrats had did, 
uh, for, for many years now on the ACA, and you've solidified that into law. And so, of course, parties are willing to trade seats to make these gains. Seat losses are temporary, and these policy gains are, are longstanding and quite durable. And so it makes complete sense to me uh, that the Republicans would be willing to, even if you know they, they take their lumps here over this nomination to some degree, willing to take those lumps, lose you know maybe at most a handful of marginal Senate seats they wouldn't have lost. Uh, for doing this, and um, in return, you get put another justice on the court for for what could be thirty years. Uh, that's a no-brainer to me. And um, it, you know, if you're looking at it the other way, if you're saying, "Well, this is going to cost the Republicans, so therefore they won't do it," that's just nuts. Um, on the other hand, like of course, from an individual politician's level, and this is really the disconnect between parties and individuals, is that no individual like really wants to lose their seat over this, and so you know they're going to have to be more careful. But again, I think you know we talked I talked about this in the last segment. The individual members who are up for election, the Republicans, probably see more downside for voting against this. Now, would they prefer this issue didn't come up? Maybe. Uh, but now that it has come up, you know, maybe you're going to lose seats either way. Vote yes or vote you know, no here. But um, I think they see quite clearly that they're going to lose more votes um, if, if they were to sort of walk away from this. And certainly they would lose more, more post-career uh, opportunities within the Republican Party. Point four is uh, that this all sort of fits in growing trends of hardball politics in Congress. Um, you know, one thing to say is that everyone says, well, this is unprecedented, that's unprecedented. And, and, and you really got to be careful when you throw around that term. Josh Chovitz wrote a good uh, law review piece on this. I'll link to it in the show notes about how almost everything in Congress is not actually unprecedented. It's all been done before. And that's also true of hardball politics. I did a piece at Monkey Cage a while back showing, you know, talking about how you know, legislatures play hardball with each other, right? This is what majorities do at times. They try to screw the minority and they try to gain every advantage they can. And that's not inherently new. Um, what we have seen recently, though, is a rise in this sort of hardball being played in, in the in the U.S. Senate um, and in national politics more broadly. And, you know, this is not sort of rocket science what chalk this up to. It's sort of the polarization of the parties uh, and what Francis Lee would call insecure majorities, that there's such steep party competition here. Um, and these things together are really making, turning parties into, you know, what I think of as sort of machine political outfits, local machines who just twist a knife to, to, to anything. And I, I've always thought, one thing I've always thought is that sort of national politics is, is quite professionalized and, and built on sort of really stable norms over time. I grew up uh, observing politics in Albany, New York, uh, which was a huge city machine. And then in, in the New York State Legislature was there. And those places were absolute banana republics uh, compared to what's going on in Congress. Like when I worked in the New York State Legislature, um, you know, there was no balance of resources with the majority minority. If you were in the majority in the Senate, you got parking passes and you got staff and you got all sorts of goodies like that. And the minority got nothing. I mean, like literally nothing. Um, there was the equivalent of Congressional Research Service there, Senate, you know, Research Service in, in the state legislature. And they worked exclusively for the majority party. It was just it was just buttoned down like that. And so one thing to know is that there are a lot of norms that run in Congress and those norms are breaking down. Um, and uh you know, you've seen this in the Senate over time on the fights over judicial nominations. The filibuster wasn't really used on nominations really ever before 1968 and then sort of vaguely there uh, and some nominations there. And then you had the Bork nomination. And then after that, you had sort of creeping um, uh, resistance to other people's judicial nominees. And then, you know, we get to the fights in during during the Bush period where, uh, you know, Democrats are sort of stalling nominations and then Republicans are taking this up a notch during Obama, and eventually no one's getting confirmed. And so Reid 
you know, kills the filibuster on judicial nominations with the nuclear option. And then you see McConnell doing the same thing on Gorsuch. And, you know, this is escalating tit for tat. Um, and, you know, we, we see this, you know, more generally around politics where we see more hardball being played and norms broken down. One thing to say about all this, though, is that norms don't necessarily mean the opposite of hardball. Like, there are plenty of norms in American politics that are hardball. Like, it's a norm, to, like, when you get major, you know, you get unilateral control of a state legislature to just screw the other party in gerrymandering. Like, that is the norm. The norm is to play hardball. Uh, but still, we're sort of seeing more and more of this. And, I, you know, I think everyone kind of knows it's weird to see people sort of talk about it in, in this principled way. Everyone kind of knows that like what McConnell said in 2016 about Garland was his bullshit. Uh, and that there's no reason to believe they would ever not turn around a dime and do this. Um, but I also don't have a lot of reason to believe the Democrats wouldn't do the same thing. So there's all these like high mindedness standing around when really everyone is down to sort of playing brass tacks with these judicial nominations. Uh, Matt Green had a nice piece in the, in the Washington Post on Sunday about sort of the development of hardball in Congress because so much of, of Congress already is built on hardball. We talk about these Senate norms, but then you like look at the House of Representatives and the entire thing is built on the majority playing hardball. They write restrictive rules that don't allow amendments that might, from the minority that might have passed on the floor. And then they string it all up and they push the bills through on a perfect majority vote. And we accept that as sort of how it works in the House. Um, one thing you could say about the House is that it's majoritarian. The other thing you could say is the House is like perfect hardball politics. The majority just does whatever it wants um, in terms of procedural stuff. And, you know, watching the Senate drift towards that is not something that I'm happy about or, you know, proud of. But it certainly is something that we're going to have to contend with going forward. And I think this nomination of bearer to the court is another example of this. Like, I don't think anyone really had any idea that McConnell was going to be sort of, no, we won't do this. And we'll, we'll, you know, there's a norm here and we're going to wait and see what the election nonsense, right? No one even believed that. And people who are saying that, you know, McConnell's not holding up to his promise. I just kind of laugh because no one was expecting that. And I, I think it's very hack argument to even be sort of saying McConnell should keep his word on this because no one ever expected him to, nor did anyone believe him when it came out of his mouth in 2016. Um, and so, you know, this hardware politics, I think it's new. Uh, but I also I also don't think it's new in the grand sense, right? Like this, we've seen an increase of this in the Senate. We have two parties competing strongly with you know very polarized ideologies um, and well sorted members, and so you're going to see more of this. Um, but it's also not any reason to sort of you know, fundamentally worry. We've had plenty of hardware politics at the state and local level for a long time, and in American history at the, the federal level. So in and of itself. Um, it is not, you know, utterly detrimental to democracy, but, you know, the system that, that runs on norms feels better in some ways, um, even if it may or may not be like there's perfectly good reasons to play hardball if you want to make substantive, substantive gains. And it's in some ways it's better if the voters just see this stuff laid bare. This is about power and that's what politics is about, getting control of power and then using it um, as opposed to sort of getting control of power and being squishy about it and always looking for compromise. It's a different model. Um, but there's nothing to say one is better or worse for democracy or right or wrong to practice. Um, but they do put different stresses on the system in, in different ways. Point five is that, uh, you know, there's a lot of talk within this hardball politics about how the Democrats are going to respond to uh, this nomination confirmation of Barrett, uh, if, if and when they get control of the government in, in January. And uh, I think the point I'd like to make is that hardball retaliation by the Democrats is not a certainty. Uh, there's this idea out there, and you see this among a lot of progressives and liberals, that the only way to uh, deal with the Republicans here is to threaten to pack the court and admit Puerto Rico and D.C. as states uh, and really turn up the screws and play hardball uh, and let them know you're going to do that. And if they still go through with this nomination... 
then then follow through and go through with with those sort of hardball retaliatory tactics. And that may be well and good as a game theoretic strategy, uh, but I just think at a practical level, it's not you know it's not even particularly likely to happen. In order to do those things, you're going to have to have unilateral control of the government, which even take that for a given because I think it's reasonably likely the Democrats are going to win the presidency and the Senate and hold the House. Uh, but you're going to need to kill the legislative filibuster. And then you're going to need to pack the core. And then you're going to admit, you know, these states in order to grow the Senate majority as sort of retaliation for the imbalance in the Senate. And it's all like vaguely plausible, but it also seems really hard. Like you need to come up with 50 votes in the Senate to kill the filibuster and pack the core and add the states. And I just don't think it's that likely. Ezra Klein and Matt Iglesias did a recent Weeds podcast where they, I thought they did a really nice discussion of sort of the structural situation in the Senate. And one piece of the structural situation is whether you like it or not, is that there is sort of a conservative bias in the Senate uh, that uh, you know puts a lot of small state Republicans in there. And if the Democrats want to be competitive in the Senate, they've got to do you know one of a few different things. They've got to either become more competitive in those small states uh, by you know shifting towards what those voters might like, uh, or they have to accept that they're not going to have control of the Senate the majority of the time, or they can go for a big process change. And sort of the, I think the dream of the of the left wing right now is to go for this big process change, maybe even abolish the Senate or whatever, but certainly get some new states in there that would that would be helpful to them. But until they do that, you got to find that 50th vote for all this stuff. And who's the 50th vote going to be come January when you win 53 Senate seats? It's going to be one of these you know candidates that defeated a Republican incumbent in I don't know in Iowa or in Montana or North Carolina, you know, maybe, you know, McSally's seat in Arizona, if Kelly wins that. And it's not clear to me that that person is going to be all gung-ho to do the bidding of the median senator in the Democratic Party. And they just may be a huge break on trying to do any of this stuff. Um, I'm not sure they're going to kill the filibuster. And if they don't kill the filibuster, then none of this is going to happen. But even imagining that they do kill the filibuster, it seems to me that D.C. statehood is something that I think has good substantive case for and will happen. Puerto Rico statehood, uh, also a good substantive case. It's going to rely on having a referendum in Puerto Rico. Um, And packing the court, man, I just don't think it's going to be popular. I think it's going to be incredibly unpopular in the public, uh, no different than it was in the 30s. And I think it's going to give a lot of pause to a lot of these marginal Democratic senators who represent ostensibly reddish or purplish states. And I just don't think they're going to go for it. Um, I don't think their interests necessarily align with the median in the Democratic Party, and I don't think they're going to have to repeatedly uh, be the people stuck on stuck on these votes, where they're you know they're going to have to take tough vote after tough vote on an agenda that is that is keeping the Democrats from achieving their goals. Um, I, I do think you know this also fits in a little bit with sort of the uh, asymmetric constitutional hardball. Uh, Joseph Fishkin and David Posen uh, wrote a uh, a very nice law review article about this about how constitutional hardball you know this idea of of you know working with the with the rules instead of sort of leaving norms in places doing everything you can on the rules that this has been asymmetric over the last 20 years or so the republicans are much more likely to engage in this and, and one reason for that i think particularly in regard to the senate is because they have sort of the breathing room in the senate to do that um the structural advantage they have in the senate uh because of the rural states that are, that are smaller and republican uh gives them a lot more room to control the senate and be the majority party there and i think they have exploited that more often than the democrats have um and, uh, you know, I, I also, you know, I wrote my dissertation on statehood and I'm very wary of the statehood process. I do think they're D.C. and Puerto Rico substantively should both be states, but I'm very wary of getting back into sort of statehood politics as partisan power politics. Uh, I think it's perfectly fine to admit D.C. and Puerto Rico to the union, um, but it's going to be very tempting for people to go beyond this. 
um, and start looking for new states or starting looking to divide states in this sort of highly polarized, highly hardball age. I don't think any of that will happen, but it is a Pandora's box of a mess um, as, it, as it was in the 19th century and really you had tremendously destabilizing effects in the country then. Um, and again, that's no reason not to admit D.C. or Puerto Rico as states. I'm in favor of both of those things on the merits. Um, but it does, it does sort of put you sort of one step closer to sort of the real hardball in the Constitution, which, and I, I wrote a long piece about this, I'll link in the show notes, which is sort of the statehood process, which is an absolute um, landmine sitting in Article 4 of the Constitution. Yeah.